0: Case, okay. Um, so the path to glory here, as we close, as we close First Peter, um, the idea that glory awaits, but like I said, that suffering is the sole path to reach it. Um, and this is something that is so. I feel like I'm looking at one side of the room and not the other. I love you guys on the left too. Um, this is something that is it's so many of the great stories. Uh, it really, and, and I could say Christian stories, think of Pilgrim's progress, where Pilgr- the whole story is essentially it's Pilgrim braving all these, uh, every, everything he goes through in his journey is suffering. Um, and in the middle of his journey, of course, he comes to the cross and his load, even though he's suffering, his load that he's been carrying all his life is cut loose because he looks to the cross and realizes Jesus uh, died for me. A great sinner and so he took he took my sin upon himself but it's about it's about glory he reaches glory and this passage is about the glory that's coming to those who are in christ but it's through the path of suffering it's through that journey and you know i think of, of course lord of the rings you know that was you knew that was coming up lord of the rings is really just one long thousand page and and tolkien said hey the the main complaint i've gotten as i've written this book and people started to read it is that it's too short um, so I say 1,000 pages. I wish it were 2,000 pages. I purposely start to read slower when I get to the end of "Lord of the Rings" every few years. But um, it's a long story that is so long that you kind of you kind of step into it yourself as you read it and feel like you're, you're on the journey yourself, because we are. We're on this journey. And the journey of life is a life. It's a journey of suffering, but, but it doesn't finish there. It finishes forever in eternal glory, if, if indeed we're in Christ. But really, the story of Lord of the Rings is, is, a, is a story of lots and lots, hundreds of pages of suffering, but it doesn't finish that way. Um, and, you know, even with fairy tales, so many of the fairy tales are really about you know, the, the curvature of a story is it gets darker. Um, it gets darker first. The darkest part is right before the dawn and then redemption comes. And the reason the reason that stories are like that and the reason that is because our life story is like that. And the reason our life story is like that is because it's written into the, the DNA of of what God was going to come and do. Through our our rebelling against him as we plunged ourselves in in the creation that we had dominion over into darkness, and then he knew in the fullness of time he would enter our creation. He would would come and live among us and he would redeem us. And he would be with us, walking us to glory, but through the cross. Walking us to resurrection life, but through the cross. Um, So, it's in the stories, it's in the fabric, it's in our lives, it's in the fabric of, of all that is because it's the true story. Um, okay, so there's lots about suffering in this passage. Let's go ahead and jump in, but that's not where we're headed. We're headed, it's the path to glory. We're headed to glory if indeed we're in Christ. Um, so exhortation to shepherds is, is point one as we as we. Um, dive into this text. um, The the path to glory, I should say, the path to glory for shepherds. Peter gives counsel and commands to the shepherds of the flock of God's church, the elders and the pastors among us. Um, And really, in a nutshell, what he says is, don't domineer. You're not given authority to shepherd the flock and to pastor the flock to to domineer and to keep folks under your thumb. Quite the opposite. Um, Shepherd to serve, not, not for gain, is what he says. Um, A few points on that shepherd to serve, not for gain. And he's speaking to leaders in the church, to pastors, to servant leaders. And um, in one of our, you know, I was going to say it's ironic and sad because one of our shepherds, one of our elders is um, not here to hear this. Hopefully he'll listen. I'll make him listen um, to make sure that he knows that. But he's actually it's it's not just ironic. It's fitting because he's actually serving us right now because he's in kids uh, loving on loving on your kids. And, and, and shepherding them, which is one of the most important things we can do. Um, and so the path to glory for shepherds, um, shepherds to serve, are to serve not, not to look for gain. Um, in verse two, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So uh, just a reminder to us as shepherds that the, the, you, know, you guys are not my sheep. You're God's. And I will give account one day for how I shepherd you. That is a sobering and a somewhat terrifying thought. It keeps me up at nights, and it really more than that wakes me up in the morning. Um, Because no no one is equal to this task. You are his. Brothers and sisters, you are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. You are dearly purchased at the cost of the life of his own son and dearly loved. Secondly, Peter says, um, he says, I saw him suffer and die on that cross. He says in verse one, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter saw Jesus crucified. Um, He saw that this is how the God of the universe has served us. You can't you can't go any lower. You can't humble yourself anymore. You can't love any more greatly than Jesus did in giving his life. Uh, for us and for Peter, he refused to dominate or to domineer. Um, Peter takes a word in, in this passage, but then, as he's talking about suffering as the path to glory, but he also, when he's using the word suffering in this whole um, in this whole letter, he uses a word that is used almost exclusively in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts for the sufferings of Jesus. So what is Peter doing here in, in applying it to us, to, to the sheep of his pasture, to we who follow Jesus, to those he's called to himself? He's connecting our suffering to the suffering of Jesus Christ. We suffer because he suffered. And we are what? We're his. The church is his, starts with the B, his body. We're vitally connected to him. He's our head. When we trust in Jesus, you are united to him and he will never let you go. He'll never sever one of his members. Um, we suffer because he suffered our suffering is a mark as Chase preached so wonderfully last week from 1 Peter 4 suffering for Christ is one of the marks that we're his and actually fruit is born from that as Jesus is more fully formed in us it's evidence of our vital union to him he suffered and so we life comes from us as, as we're crushed and sometimes like Cheryl said it's in little and I'm going to get into this in the text in the in the sermon, it's in little ways. Because be, let's be honest, even if we're never overtly persecuted here in the United States for our faith, and by the way, this is not to recommend that we go seek out suffering. That's masochism. That's never recommended in the Bible. Suffering's an evil, it will be done away with one day in glory. But meanwhile, we um, we need to know that he it's a tool that he uses as we are broken people in this broken world. Uh, he doesn't just say get through it. He says I'm using it to make you to make you Love me more, to to more fully form myself in you and to draw you closer to myself and to have people see you suffer well and say, Christ is real. He's the Savior of the world. Um, But, okay, it's a mark of our true discipleship to Him, of His journey with us when He says, Pick up your cross and follow me. Um, So, we can never forget, okay, when we're reading this letter. That this is the same Peter who, before the cross, um, he sharply rebuked Jesus when Jesus revealed that he, was, he had come to suffer. And that, in fact, the way that he was going to save us as the Savior of the Jews and of all mankind and to, and to actually save and restore all creation was to go to the cross, the ultimate suffering, and to endure the wrath of God on that cross and to become our sin. Peter couldn't handle it. That wasn't Peter's idea of the way this was going to go down of what following Jesus was going to look like and of what, how Jesus was going to save us. So, it totally confronts our flesh and the worldly way of doing things. Um, but this is the same Peter that has now seen the Messiah hang on the cross and then he met with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he understands now that glory is in us and glory is coming and glory is where we're headed, but it's through. It's through suffering. Um, Peter realizes that, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. Right? And what I was going to say, I lost my train of thought earlier, but as Cheryl reminded us so beautifully that we may never be persecuted overtly in this country for our faith, I hope we're not, but if. Because we're, by virtue of being just in this world and being broken people who sin and who also suffer for lots of other reasons that aren't because of sin, we suffer daily. So knowing that God uses that, he uses that, even, even the idea of like suffering by choosing not to win an argument with your spouse or with someone else, just dying to that, that's a form of suffering. Just to use one small example, Jesus, if you do it for the Lord, he will use that death unites it to his cross and he will use that to bring about resurrection life and power in your life and people will see that and people will be changed by that and you will be changed by that there's another um, quote that I pulled from a resource this week it says Christianity is a religion of the agony and the ecstasy with the former preceding the latter so there is ecstasy coming like C.S. Lewis said um, we're far too easily pleased we're making mud pies in a slum, but there's a holiday at sea that's offered to us there's a holiday. He, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We settle for weak stuff, trying to avoid the suffering that's here. There's glory coming. That's, that's, that's Peter's main. As he's talking about suffering and talking about commands to shepherds and commands to sheep and how to live in this world, this broken world, he's moving us toward the idea that we are headed somewhere wonderful to be with Christ face to face. But to continue with Peter's commands to, to the flock. Um, He says, be examples to the flock. In other words, don't just tell them how to live. Show with your lifestyle that this is follow me as I follow Christ. And it's so easy to, I mean, this is a precarious position when you are, when I'm teaching God's word almost for a living. Yes, for a living. To to just teach it, but not to live it. Setting myself up for hypocrisy. Peter says, don't do that. Um, And I have to admit, there's a lot of that in my life. And so this is a deeply convicting, no one is equal, I think, to ever preach God's word, but this is a deeply, a particularly deeply convicting text to preach as a shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He taught us the truth of God, but as the truth of God, he also perfectly demonstrated it by serving in his whole life and his whole ministry, and then pour literally pouring his life out in the ultimate gesture, uh, the ultimate saving, redeeming gesture of, of dying for us in our place. Um, he showed his love for the sheep by laying his life down. And that's what Peter tells to, to shepherds. He says, that's, that's your model. And Jesus is in you. And so that's the way that you need to shepherd the sheep. Um, so also in his commands to, um, to elders, to shepherds, Peter, if I can say this, says shepherd for glory. And what do I mean by that? Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What's he saying here? Well, in short, um, so it's a bit strange because you would think it's a strange contrast. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So you would have expected not for shameful gain, but the opposite of that, but free of charge not what he says. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So what is he saying? I think, I think in short, what he's saying is be motivated as a shepherd by something um, greater and less petty than money. Don't be a mercenary as a shepherd. Don't just, okay, begrudgingly, I'm going to shepherd the sheep because you pay me. Rather, do it eagerly, doing it knowing that there's a, do it knowing that there's a much greater reward that's coming. He, the great shepherd of the sheep, to you shepherds, as you lay your life down for the sheep, as you um, don't domineer, as you give your life so that they can be blessed and, and, and protected and walk with Christ and rooted and grounded in him, um, he will reward you himself. And that is an eternal glory that will never go away. It will last forever. Way better than just making a living. And thank God also I'm able to make a living by doing this. But don't let that be the reason, Taylor. Chase. Nathaniel, future elders, that you do this. And, and we also have elders that are unpaid elders. That's one of the, one of the things that we believe is, is very biblical to have lay unpaid elders among us, but also to have folks like me who we, I make my living off of preaching the gospel and shepherding. Um, but Peter is very careful to say, don't let that be your motivation. Saint, uh, Saint this isn't in the notes, but I was thinking of the fact that Chris Austin, um, he was, I think, a fourth century Preacher in Constantinople, they called him the Golden Tongue. He was an, he was an amazing orator, and he, I think that he, he called um, this scenario where you're being, I'm being paid uh, to to preach to, I'm I'm preaching to those who are paying my salary. He called that like the golden handcuffs, the golden handcuffs, and the temptation is to be motivated, to tickle your ears with things that you might like to hear because you're paying my salary, to keep you happy with me. The temptation is not to preach the unvarnished word of God that confronts us, that challenges us, that puts Christ up before us. And so that's just one example of what Peter says not to do. Do it for a much shepherd for glory, not just to be paid. Don't, don't be a mercenary. Um, his, it says that Christ will give us the unfading crown of glory, this eternal prize that is Christ himself um, and, and, and the benefits that he brings us into in the new creation. Um, so again, this is the same Peter that saw Christ crucified, but um, in John 21 and then in Acts 10, we, we, re, we realize he met with the resurrected Jesus, the, one, the same one that he saw crucified. He, uh, he took a walk with Jesus. He had a hard conversation with Jesus. He, um, he ate fish. By the sea that Jesus had cooked up for him, with the risen Christ in Acts ten, he says this. He says we've actually we actually ate, we ate with him, we were with him. Um, so Peter knows that um, there is suffering and service and death, but on the other side is glory. And Christ passed through it, and this is the same path that he asks us to to walk. Um, but he's with us. And so, lastly, before moving to point two, um. Just notice the democratic nature of Paul's language. It's really touching. He says, I'm an elder, and you are fellow elders, verse 1. He's talking to others, and he just puts himself on the same level. He is one of the, one of the crack troops of Jesus. He was with him from the beginning. Um, and he doesn't put himself on a different level. He says, yeah, you're my fellow elders. So, um, and then he says, in verse 1, 2, he says, we're going to share the future glories together, right? Right? Um, Basically, what he's saying is there are just two levels in the church, Jesus and everyone else. Right. And though and the everyone else is we're sinners saved by uh, sheer grace, the work of God that we don't deserve, but that he gladly pours out in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus came down to be among us, died for us and unites himself to us vitally. He's our head. We're his body. And so Peter recognizes that. Um, And I actually have in my notes here just to read it because Cheryl said it in her testimony. So shepherd like he shepherded, serve and suffer for the good of the sheep, not domineering, and know that glory is coming. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, Christ endured the cross, um, despising its shame. So um, that's point one, um, the path to glory for shepherds. Now the path to glory for sheep, verses 5 through 11. Humble yourself, Peter says. God opposes the proud. This is the best reason ever. Um, it's actually verse 5, the end of verse 5. He says, God opposes. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting from, I think, Proverbs 3 there, which is why I was going to have Tommy read Proverbs 3. Um, but the best reason ever to run from pride like the plague and to embrace a life of humility and not to put yourself, not to vaunt yourself to the front, but to, to be patient and to let God put us, not to let God promote us in his timing, um, is that God actually, um, he opposes the proud. Man, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want the most powerful being in the universe, the only, only uncreated being to be opposed to me. Um, and, uh, but he gives grace. He gives favor that they don't deserve to the humble. I think immediately of the, the parable that Jesus tells when he's trying to talk about how we should approach God in prayer. And he says, there was this religious guy, basically like a pastor, a Pharisee. And he was standing on the temple steps and he said, Oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I do all the things right. I obey you perfectly. He came to God thinking like, I'm, I've basically merited a relationship with you. And then the other tax collector who was living a life of sin, he didn't even look up to heaven and he said, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. And he said that with his head bowed down, have mercy on me. And Jesus said that second man, God didn't hear the prayer of the first because he opposes pride. But the prayer of the second, that second man went away justified because he knew that he didn't deserve any of God's favor that he was asking for because God is the kind of God that gives favor to the humble, to those who say, I don't deserve it. You're, you died for me. You bore the wrath of God for me. Bring me all the way into a peaceful, loving, full-fledged relationship with your Father. Um, and so, I mean, nothing gives humility like a right understanding of the gospel, right? That I deserve what Jesus took on that cross. And he gave me he has given me through faith, received through faith, his inheritance, his righteousness. Um, it humbles us to the dust. So God opposes the proud. Best reason ever to run from pride like the plague and to live in a community where others can. It's I mean, pride's like bad breath. You don't. You're the last one to know that you have it. <laughs> but man, if an arrogant person walks in the room, he thinks or she thinks he's the me meow and. And uh, everyone within minutes can tell that's, that's an arrogant person, and it's off-putting, except for the person. Because pride, by ver, by, just by definition, we are blind to our own pride. So we need the scriptures, we need the, the presence of the living God and the gospel to confront us. And it's a mirror to show us, like, I am a proud person. Lord, humble me. I'm, I'm looking at the cross, and, I, and, and I'm deeply humbled by what you've done for me. I don't deserve it. Forgive me. Slay my pride. But also we need community with people with family that love us and that aren't going anywhere they can speak into our lives and, and show us lovingly, hey, brother, sister, I see this. Right? We need that. And we need and when we feel that press not to boost, that's part of what church membership is for. So that we're committed to a church so that we can grow together and not when we feel the slightest bit of pressure head out, head out and go to another church and sit in the back row. Um, nothing against you guys in the back row. And, and, and not be committed and just, there, just be there consuming rather than being... Um, Worked on and being part of a family. Um, so this is the part where I said I'd get a little, just a little bit more into um, just the suffering that we experience daily, just to, by virtue of just being broken and sinful people in a broken world. Um, Peter says, "Cast all your cares on Him." There, a, a, another translation. A guy that it's contemporary at C.S. Lewis, uh, pastor. He, he did it. He did it. He was a classicist who was well versed in Greek, and he did his own translation of the New Testament, named J.B. Phillips. He translates this. You can throw the whole weight of your of your anxieties on him, and that's really the, that captures the sense of the Greek. And so does the word cast. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties on him. That's the sense. Um, the word cast here in the Greek it's used it's used to throw saddles onto beasts of burden like camels and donkeys. Um, and it's, it's the same word. So think about the, the uh, cast your cares on him. He's really saying take a lot of energy, put a lot of energy into throwing onto God what it is that is in turmoil in you. Just, just simmering under the surface. I'm, I'm like a constantly anxious person. And so what Peter is telling me here is don't just cover it over. Don't just paper over it. Don't just act like it's not there. Don't just tamp it down. But the remedy to this is to cast, it's to confess to one to another and to cast these cares to the Lord in prayer. And prayer Prayers work. It's work. Um, it's a highway to God that Jesus has purchased for us through his body and blood. But it is, it is work to come to God honestly. And that's one of the reasons I don't do it very well. Uh, but um, the Greek dictionary says this word means to propel something from one place to another. So like to heave, if you can imagine like heaving a, uh, a shot put. That's the idea to throw, heave it, um, heave these things that we're anxious about to the Lord. Let me just dig into this a little bit. Um, often we need when we're praying, uh, sometimes when I'm trying to pray without any help, praying out loud helps because I'm just kind of fuzzy in my head. Um, so I pray better, like if I'm in my car or um, in the shower sometimes or somewhere where I feel like nobody else can hear me but I can kind of talk out loud and people won't think I'm nuts. But also, we need help. We need prayers from the church, from of old. We need the scriptures. The psalms are full of prayers that we ought to be praying back to God. So there's a phrase, scripture-fed, spirit-led prayer. So I want to encourage you to allow this sort of tossing your anxieties on the Lord, these sorts of vehement, casting of cares upon God in low and high estates are all through the Psalms. So I want to encourage you not just to read the Psalms, but to use them as a prayer book, to pray them uh, back to God. The Psalms are full of, they're violent with emotion. And that used to really bother me. I used used to think that David, and I still, I don't anymore, but he bothered me because like, you're such a baby. Like, why are you blubbering David? But what he's doing is that he's being honest and unvarnished before the Lord instead of prettying up his prayers, which don't really, can I say this? Those Don't impress God. Come to God as you are, um, like a kid, right? Like, just, just tell him what you want, and cry before him, and shout before him, and dance before him, and be. So I would kind of keep things cerebral, but, but the Psalms help connect our hearts and our heads. And Psalms are violent with emotion, as I said, and grit, because life is violent and gritty. So let them give words to your prayers to God when you don't have them. Um Tish Harrison Warren, in a a book called Prayer in the Night, she says, I used to think of grief as a season. No, I'm going to, this is slightly tangential, but I'm going to bring it back. I used to think of grief as a season, something tragic that you get through. People lose a loved one, and then for a year or two, they grieve. Certainly, there are particular seasons of grief, but the way I understand grief has changed. I've come to also see grief as part of the everyday experience of being human in a world that is both good and cruel. Like I said, we are broken people in a broken world. And Tish, again, she says, I taste pangs of sorrow even, get this, I taste pangs of sorrow even when things are most happy. Isn't there a proverb that says that there's, even in, in joy, there's, there's sadness sometimes? that No, it's, almost, it's very hard to even share what's in your heart um, in those moments with somebody else. But God knows. And he's, the incarnation, if it tells us anything, it tells us that he's with us in that. He knows that, and he wants for you he wants to hear you voice that to him. Uh, this same author shares a, a, of a spiritual director she knows who starts each of her counseling sessions with five to ten minutes of silence and what she says is that in that time almost everybody starts to uh, cry She's, um, at that point, almost everyone begins to cry, and what she says is that because there 's just being broken people in a broken world, there's, there's pain. God wants, he knows that he's with us. He wants us to share that with one another and with him. She says we must learn to weep. Feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. It's the cost even of holiness. Christians have to let ourselves be a people who mourn. And so my point here is not I know this is a bit of a sidestep because Peter's talking about suffering and he's really talking about Overt suffering, suffering of all kinds as we're persecuted for following Jesus Christ. But there is suffering even every day for each one of us in various ways, just because we are broken humans in a broken world. And so I think that this text really, and just to be reminded to take it to God, he's with us, he cares, and he's going to use it to make us more like Jesus. Um, and, and nothing is too small to bring to him. I think Satan whispers that lie a lot to us, and that's just false. Um. Okay. And then Peter goes on. um, Peter goes on. Discipline yourselves. Stay sober. Stay alert. Suffer well. Is basically what what he says as he moves toward the end of this passage. Um, Don't let your guard down. We are at war. Right? Satan wants to lull us to sleep to make us think that we're just kind of going throughout our days. um, And just to get get from one... uh, end of the day to the other, and, and our culture is in our, our world right now is telling us it's all about comfort, it's all about pleasure, it's all about um, getting to retirement, it's all about surrounding yourself with as many uh, things as you can to, to make sure that you're taken care of. Um, but, but what Paul is saying is that we are in a fight. We are fighters in a ring, we're runners in a race. Um, and the words here are possibly recalling Jesus' words to Peter and to the other disciples 30 years earlier in Luke 21. And let me just read that text to you. Luke 21. This is the end of the all of that Discourse. And um, Jesus is talking about uh, what's going to happen uh, when he leaves within that generation. And the suffering is going to start mounting. And basically he's saying, like, don't lose heart. Don't think that I'm not with you. And don't think that I'm not on the throne. Don't think, don't think that I don't have all power just because you're suffering. Remember, I'm God. And the way that I chose to save the world was to die on a cross. Don't you think that it looked like he was out of control and yet he was in perfect control? And so he's saying, when things start to go awry, don't lose your faith. When I leave, stay focused. Remember, stay sober, stay alert. And this is what he says. He says, and I think that Peter may be, I don't know, but I think Peter may be remembering that and pulling from that when he says this here at the end of his letter of 1 Peter. He says, Luke 21, starting in verse 34, Jesus says to Peter and his other disciples, but watch yourselves, he's talking about after he ascends to the Father, Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Um, and I remember I heard a teacher say this once like he's telling Peter and the apostles the twelve who were with him he's saying hey watch out because if you don't keep your eyes focused on me, um, you're, you're going to be so weighed down by the cares of this life that you're just going to waste your life. You're going to waste your life in just trying to cope and trying to get through things with even drunkenness and dissipation. Um, I mean, that is shocking. But I think that we, I can see that in my own life. I can see not the drunkenness and the dissipation, but the tendency just to numb. The tendency just to surround myself with comforts and the anxieties and the cares of this world to distract me from the fact that Christ has called us to be on mission for him and to suffer well and to preach the gospel and to walk through this thing together um, and to fix our eyes on the future glory that's coming, right? Um, What does suffering for Jesus do and living with the realization he's called us to suffering for his name and that he is with us richly in this suffering like chase said last week it cuts the nerve center of um, it cuts the nerve center of this sort of living it sobers us up it cuts the nerve center of sin in our lives and then he and then peter moves to um, resist the devil he's out to devour you he's a, he's like a prowling lion and you know the the bible's clear elsewhere that, that satan doesn't come to us First, as often as a lion, as someone who wants to devour us. Peter is telling us this is what he actually is. He's unmasking, he's uncloaking the devil. But rather, it's clear that Satan often comes to us in ways that are extremely appealing, like an angel of light. He looks like an angel. He looks like someone that we want to be with. He looks like something we should move toward. Um, He's disguised as something not that you'd run away from, a prowling, roaring lion, but something that you'd, you'd run towards. Um, But Peter is saying, you know, and whether that's through um, just, again, a life of consumerism, a life of pleasure, a life of self-indulgence, just creating a life for myself. that's all about me. That sounds really nice. But where does that stuff lead us? Peter's saying it leads us to hell. It's a ravening lion. Um, Satan is someone, something who wants to kill you and destroy you, not just kill you, but destroy you and to drag your soul down to hell. Um, if he can't do that, uh, then if you're in Christ, then he'll try to at least neutralize you and me to render us ineffective. How will he do that? Again, he'll do it through pleasure and ease and comfort. The cares of this world, to quote Jesus in Luke 21, again, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Um, anxiety, right? Heave, heave that onto the Lord. Riches, use them for his kingdom it will help us release, release the death grip that we have on what we perceive as our stuff um, and, re- and to refuse making little tin gods of money, which is actually actually the Lord's, and our time, the Lord's, our resources, the Lord's. Um, so Satan is a lion. How else is Satan a lion? Maybe it's, maybe it's through, how does he try to devour us? Maybe it's through distraction. Maybe it's through pleasure. Maybe it's through other things. But how else? Um, through accusation. Satan is, is the accuser. He loves to accuse us. And so one of the ways he's going to try to claw at you and drag you down is through accusation. Um, Zechariah 3 says this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Satan is standing before the high priest who's making sacrifices for the people And, and, and he is standing next to this high priest. And he's just whispering accusations in Joshua's ear, all of which, no doubt, are true. Satan knows our sins better than we know our sins. He knows our misdeeds and the things that stand between us and the Lord. And he's just accusing, who are you, to stand as a representative before God's people? Who are you? Um, Maybe he does this while you're in every day, just at work with someone that you love, um, uh, preaching God's word, uh, serving someone in an argument, right? He's always accusing us. He's always showing us things that we've done that are true. Um, But if you read on in this text, so Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua to accuse him. But verse two says this in, in Zechariah three. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments Right. So the fact is that the high priest always had spotless garments going before the Lord to make um, atoning sacrifice. But the reality was that Satan, Satan saw his heart. He saw his misdeeds. He sees what we've done. He sees that in ourselves we stand guilty before the living God. And the fact was that his garments were filthy, actually. Even though he had an outward... He had an outward clothing that was clean. Standing... In his own merit, before the living God, he was filthy and so are we. Okay, so he was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ does for us. He, on the cross, Became our sin, took our sin upon himself. And when we look to him, we can know that he is our sin payment. He completely paid for every single one of the sins of anyone who looks to him by faith. And that's what we're going to celebrate pointedly with communion in a a second. He endured the wrath of God for all the sins of everyone who looks to him. And he then trades us that for his righteousness. He clothes us with his own righteousness, with his own perfect life. And then he dies the death that we deserve for our lives before the living God. Um, and that's something that is placed on us, his own righteousness, as we receive Christ himself by faith. And that is, this is a prophecy of that here. Um, and so the only, and in the, in the completely sufficient ammunition that we have against the accuser against the lion who seeks to devour us when he starts to accuse us is not, hey, I've lived a pretty good life. It's that Christ the righteous died for me. He bore my sins on the cross. And through his broken body and shed blood, I have full access. I have full access to the Father who loves him and in Christ who loves me and who gave himself for me. Peter goes on to talk... um, Uh, As he wraps in this letter about, um, he he says, resist him, verse nine, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, It's encouraging to know that others in our family are suffering, not because misery loves company, but to know that I'm not alone and to know that we as a church are called to this together. And that part of how we can unburden ourselves is by sharing the suffering that we're going through, and gaining courage from that, and to know that we're on this path, on this journey together. I mean, the fellowship of the ring, right? Lord of the Rings. They had a fellowship. Um, that fellowship is really, really important, especially in this day and age of isolation. Maybe more isolation in our culture, in our time in the world than ever before. Um, technology that was supposed to bring us together has really—it's given us this screen, and it's convinced us that we have all this fellowship, but it's so, so lonely. There's a book called, by Sherry Turkle called, called uh, Alone Together. Even when people are in the, in the same place, in the same room, or at the same table, they're really alone because they're just isolated by their... And COVID, made, of course, made that worse. But God made us to be a community and to invite the worst of sinners, holding up Christ, the righteous, who became sin for us, the worst of sinners into that community. He brings us to himself. And so... Um, not just thinking about like, su- our suffering, but thinking about the global church right now and how people are severely suffering today for their faith in Jesus Christ. Like praying for them, being encouraged by them, by hearing their stories. Um, and I think that, um, anyway, uh, Pavel was going to share a testimony last week about he's just been in some places and uh, around the world and and seen and heard some things and has some reports for us, but hopefully we'll be able to hear some of that from him soon. But we know this, we know that the church around the world is suffering voice of the martyrs, a great publication to get. It's free. I get it free. Anyway, if you want to subscribe to it, it talks about weekly or monthly about how the global church is suffering and not just the global church, but thinking about the church historic, the church that's gone before us that has suffered um, for their faith. That should be an encouraging thing. Peter says to us, Um, the church here now living is called the church militant, not the church complacent, but the church militant, the church on mission, soldiers, farmers, athletes, cutting away anything that's not contributing toward our following Christ together, right? Um, But then the the church thinking about suffering, but not suffering in and of itself, but suffering as a path, as the path to glory in Christ. Um, The church that has died and is with Christ now and awaiting his return and the resurrection of the body is called the church, not militant, but the church triumphant. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And I love I love Peter's perspective. He says, after you suffered for a little while. Right. After you suffered, verse 10, for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. There it is. In Christ will himself. Look how intimate that is. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's not just a savior, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Oh Amen. That dominion is ours and will be ours one day perfectly as we share it with him as we're glorified. But I love how Peter says, after you suffered for a little while. Sometimes when you're in the middle of suffering, it can seem like it's going to last forever. But he puts it in perspective and he says, hey, it's just a little while. How can he do that? He's not minimizing it. He went through a lot more suffering than probably any of us have experienced, certainly than I've experienced. I can't speak for you. But um, up next to the fact that our glory is going to last forever in a new creation, where Christ will literally meet us at every point of pain we've ever had in our lives, and he will wipe away that tear. He will apply tenderness in his sovereignty and in his perfect knowledge and goodness to every single bit of pain you've ever experienced, and he will bring us into to his banqueting table and into a new creation where there won't be sin, there won't be sadness, there won't be cancer, there won't be death. Uh, and we'll be with him face to face and we'll be together forever. In a new creation, not on clouds playing harps. In a new creation. As Augustine said, nothing that is good will not remain. And so I, I just think of when Peter says, um, after you suffered for a little while, and he's holding our little while suffering up against the eternal glory that we're headed toward, Right? I just think of that Francis Chan, I mentioned it before, but that Francis Chan rope, where he's got a rope as a prop when he's preaching, and it's this rope that goes, he has a huge sanctuary there, are a thousand people in, and it goes throughout the entire sanctuary, this rope. And he's holding it on stage, and there's a tiny, the bit that he's holding is red. And he's like, this red part represents, just imagine this rope goes all the way past this building, all the way out, all the way through the city, all the way to the ocean, or whatever. He's like, this red part is our lives. That's it. But the way that we live here is going to affect the rest of the road. But so many of us live just for this part. Peter's saying, Keep your eyes fixed on glory. He's here with us now, and He's taking us somewhere good. And He trod the path before us. Be encouraged. Um, There's more to say, but I need to close. The final point is simply the salutation to stand firm. To stand firm. Um, Peter wraps in verse 13 with, um, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. He's talking about the church in Rome. And this is a, an inclusio. This is an envelope structure where he's speaking back to the first verse of the, of the letter. First 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, where he opens the book by saying, I'm, I'm writing this to the elect exiles. And what he's doing here is he's, um, he's referring back to the Old Testament exile of the Jews to Babylon and he's basically speaking to the church just to just to put a wrap on this whole letter. He's speaking to the church and he's saying you're in exile now. But you're headed home. He's with you. He's in you. He gave his life for you. He's resurrected. You're seated with him in the heavenlies. He's got his hands on the on the control center of the universe. Regardless of your situation and of your feelings, that's your reality. He's paid for your sin. He's using suffering to bring about good, to bring people to to faith in him, to make, to create, to to more fully form him in you. But you're in exile. This is not as good as it gets. He's coming again, and he's going to bring you to himself, and he's going to make all things new. Um, I'll just finish with, there's there's this verse in John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's the last prayer that Jesus prays that we're aware of um, before he goes to the cross. It's on the eve of the cross. And he prays it for us. He's talking to his Father and, he, and, he, and he's talking to us, those that he would lay his life down for and draw to himself. And he says this in John 17:24. He says, "Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory." That you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What we have seen of Jesus so far, what Peter had seen of Jesus, he saw the resurrected Christ, but he walked with a suffering Messiah who went to the cross for him. But what Jesus is saying here is that you're not even going to believe. I think the first thing that will happen to us when we get to heaven and that we see the resurrection of the body when Christ returns, and we are also given a resurrection body like his to enter into, to romp in, to adventure in, to explore in, to celebrate in together. Hey, forever, by the way, with him. When we see this new creation, when we see him face to face, when we see what he's done and what he's brought us into, when we see his glory, when we see what's actually his inheritance that he is bringing us into. Sinners saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by our own works. The first thing that we're going to do is just our jaws are going to drop. And what Jesus is saying here is so precious because he's saying, I'm jealous to bring them into my house, to bring them into my inheritance, to show them my stuff, to show them who I really am, to show them my glory. Not so I can brag, but so I can bring them into that and say, brothers and sisters, this is now yours in me. That's where we're headed. And, uh, and Peter wants us to remember that so that we suffer well um, as people with a great hope and to do it together. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you um, that it's encouraged me, it's encouraged Cheryl, it's encouraged, hopefully, others, because your word does not return void, Um, even by virtue of the fact that we are broken people, we're weak people, we're sinful people in this broken world that seems to be going more and more haywire, even here in the West, certainly around the world every day. Um, but we're reminded of the fact that we don't have to pretend like suffering is not happening. We don't have to be discouraged by suffering. We know that you're using it um, to make us more like you and to draw people to yourself and that it's not what we're going to stay in forever. I pray that you would use it to make us more keen for your kingdom coming both now and fully one day when we see you face to face, um, that we would understand that suffering is indeed the path to glory and that we would be encouraged by that, Lord. Um, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.